looking at the dependent Christian life. This was actually based upon one of the talks I gave in Louisville, or Louisville, they don't say Louis, they say Louisville, um, and uh, it seemed to go fairly well. And after the talk, I was speaking to some people, and this guy says, well, we now need to have a face-off between you and Mike Reeves. He's this British guy who's also written on Christology, and I thought, okay, he's going to like talk about like a theological face-off, and he goes, we need to see who's got the better accent. And I was like, what? <laughs> accent? I don't have an accent. But when you go to a place like Louisville, you get to have an accent, and that really helps you. Uh, you get an extra five minutes um, before it wears off, but now I'm back here, I don't have an accent again, so that's too bad. But when I'm in America, actually, they tell us that uh, Canadians are, often get jobs in their um, reporting industry and stuff because they can be easily understood. So if you need a job, you speak clearly, you can go down and they can understand you. Um, so the topic is Christ's dependence and ours, and I hope it will be of some value to you. We're going to look at Psalm 36 from verse 7 to 9 as sort of a springboard text. Uh, we read from the third servant song earlier, to which we will return as well. So Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask in the spirit of uh, knowing that we can depend upon you, that we are but mere dust and ashes, that you will help us. It is warm, so we pray for special grace to be able to listen and not be overwhelmed, to be blessed, and to be thankful for your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. There was, in a little bit of a social media firestorm a few weeks ago, uh, I was aware of this, and Keith Groom brought it to my attention, being ever-present in the things of the Lord. Uh, where did he go? I, there, there he is. Yeah, have your glory, Keith. Uh, one of my friends actually made this point about how sermons in Reform Circle should be a lot shorter, and he thought whether... Uh, 10 or 15 minutes, and then there was a blow-up over that, 10 or 15 minutes, especially from the pastors who preach too long. Uh, our dear friend Stephen even got involved in the response, and there he's friends with the person who set it off, and it was just interesting to see because you learned a lot about what people think about preaching and uh, questions of ability to hold an audience and so forth came up, and it was quite interesting, even if 10 or 15 minutes does sound a, a little bit shocking to us. Uh, my immediate thought was, if I were to only preach 10 or 15 minute uh, sermons, uh, I would not want to come to the next AGM when my salary was being discussed. I preach longer sermons simply for the fact that I don't want to lose half my salary. 
Um, that was my only argument. But I did think it would be, when I was thinking a little more theologically about it, it would be good for every preacher to be set back to 10 minutes and to see what type of message they could preach in 10 minutes and then go to 15 and then earn the rights to speak longer and see where you get cut off. And, you know, it'd be nice where uh, you could have the congregation simply just stand up when enough was enough. I'm just not sure we would ever get the unanimity on that. And please don't do so right now. But having said that, there is a point where you should be able to get a message across. And my message today is going to be very brief and simple. And I hope it's simple enough for you to at least take this and have some change in your own life. The talk is upon Christ's dependence on ours, and the starting point you might think would be at Christ's life of dependence, but it's actually God's own life of independence, God's own life of needing nothing because He possesses everything. And there are certain attributes of God that we can ask for a resemblance of them in our own lives. So God is wise, and we should ask to be wise. God is good, and we should ask to be good. There is an analogy between God's goodness and the goodness we should want. You could look at God's mercy, and we should ask to be merciful. God's holiness, and ask to be holy like God. We call those God's communicable attributes. But what's interesting is the attributes that we should seek after from God, so to speak, are often the last attributes we look for, and we would rather the attributes that we have no business asking for. So, for example, sovereignty, the ability to control all things according to our will. How many of us fall into the error of wanting to have complete control in our lives of not only what goes on in our lives, but in others' lives? There's a degree to which sovereignty is something that we wish we had. We are also under the illusion of omniscience, that with the internet or with our phones, we can know everything that is going on all the time, and we have a false sense of our knowledge. We could look at other attributes, like power, omnipotence, and there is something quite disturbing in a certain sense about the way in which we can now go around with our phones And we can simply tap here, tap there, and it is so. It is our own Genesis 1, where God speaks and it is so. We tap, and all of a sudden we have groceries. We tap, and all of a sudden we have shoes. We tap, and all of a sudden things come to life. And I think there can be something very dangerous in our so-called thoughts of how powerful we really are when we are not. But perhaps the attribute that we are most guilty of trying to steal from God is His independence, of being self-sufficient, of being self-reliant, of not actually being dependent upon the independent one. And that, I think, is a lesson for us because when you look at the life of Jesus Christ, you have the life of someone who had every right to be independent. He is fully God. And yet, you have the very opposite. In fact, everything about what we are told about the life of our Lord Jesus Christ is that He came into this world and lived the fully dependent 
life. So when we read Psalm 36 as Christ would have read Psalm 36, we learn something about who God is. When you see God's ability to bless us, you will see it is often connected with His steadfast love. One of the most precious terms in all of God's Word. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. And notice what happens as a result of God having steadfast love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That is saying they are dependent upon you. They feast on the abundance of your house. They are dependent upon you. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. They are dependent upon you. For with you, not with us, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. We are dependent upon God. For in Him we live and we move and we have our being. And when you come to Christ, you come to someone who takes seriously these words of Psalm 36, verse 7 to 9. You have to understand that when Christ comes into the world, He lives the life that you ought to live. He lives the life you need to live. He lives the life that you are to imitate to the degree that it is possible in His strength. So we can say, who is the most consciously dependent person who has ever lived? And the answer is our Lord. If you do have your Bibles, I just want to go quickly through some of the servant songs. They begin in chapter 42. Beginning in chapter 42, verse 1. I'm not going to go through all the verses, but just some of them. Notice in chapter 42, the very first servant song speaking about the Messiah. And I want you to know there are four servant songs. And I want you to see there's a difference between the first three and the fourth. And it's a massive, massive difference. 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold. The first thing God has to say about His servant is that He upholds Him. My chosen in whom my soul delights. And there's echoes there of the baptism. This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. I have put my Spirit upon Him. And He will bring forth justice to the nations. We begin with God upholding the dependent servant. And then you go to the second servant song, chapter 49. And we can read from the very beginning in chapter 49, verse 1. A few words in, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And skipping to verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and here's the key, my God has become my strength. My God has become my strength. If you are a Christian and you can say each day, my God has become my strength, that is what it means to live a dependent life. My God has become my strength. And he knew that from the time he was formed in the womb. If you go forward to chapter 50 and begin at verse 4, 
you will see more of this conscious dependence Christ has upon His Father. The Lord God has given me. Not I've given myself. Not I've learned. Not I've developed. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. That's dependence. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That I may know how to sustain those who will be dependent. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The emphasis is upon what God is doing for Christ. Verse 7, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. So you could say, my God has become my strength. Or you could say, the Lord God helps me. Those are the mottos of the Christian life. Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Not just verse 7, but verse 9. So what do you find in these first three servant songs? The emphasis is almost entirely upon what the Father is doing for His servant, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. But then when you get to chapter 53, the emphasis completely changes. And most Christians, to our shame, know chapter 53, but we don't understand the greater context that gets us to chapter 53. Chapter 53 is really about Christ being able to go through hell, as it were, going to the cross, being reproached by men as one from whom men hide their faces. The Lord lays upon Him the iniquity of us all. And so on. And when you read chapter 53, what do you find? It is not God upholding Christ so much as what God does to Christ. It is what Christ undergoes because now He takes the role of our substitute upon the cross. As Luther said, He is treated as the greatest sinner who has ever lived. How does Christ fulfill Psalm 53? The answer is actually in the first three servant songs. God prepares him for that ordeal. God sustains him so that he can go through with it. So you get to the New Testament in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, and Jesus will say, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. Or verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Or chapter 6, verse 57, As the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on Me, He will also live because of Me. Here is how the Christian life goes. The Son of God comes into the world and He depends entirely upon the Father to sustain Him. And we assume that same identity through Christ. We depend upon Christ and the Father to sustain us. So when you get to Christ's temptation, here He is starving. Here He is emaciated, as it were, with practical hunger that we cannot conceive of. And the devil says, turn these stones to bread. Now he's tempting him with a real temptation because he was hungry. It's no temptation if you've just eaten to say, hey, turn these stones to bread. I got lucky yesterday. Uh, 
I was rushing from my flight from Cincinnati, landed, and I had to get to the flight from Toronto to Vancouver. Not a lot of time. Customs, you've heard of Pearson. Uh, people weeping, wailing. It's all a horrible scene. But as an experienced traveler who knows a few things about airports, I uh, swiftly got through. I even texted my wife while I was walking through the airports. I think I broke the record from gate to gate. And then I thought, I'm very hungry. And I went and I looked and I wanted the Thai noodles that were gluten-free. And they said, 20-minute wait. I says, no. I rushed over to another place and got the biggest salad I've seen. And they, the, that man before was a bit mean to the lady. And I was really nice to her. And she gave me twice as much as she gave him. I'm convinced. And I wolfed this salad down. And man, I was full after this salad. And then I hear over the intercom, uh, Mark Jones, please come to the gate. I thought, oh, this is good. What's it going to be? Here's your upgrade, sir. Ah, my upgrade. That's nice. A bigger seat, a bit more class and sophistication away from the riffraff, you know. Uh, had to look back to see how they were doing. They seemed to be okay under the circumstances. But then I get a menu brought to me. And the menu, oh, well, it's gnocchi or gnocchi, or uh, as my Italian uh, sister-in-law had an absolute fit when I said gnocchi, she said, no, no, no. And there was chicken and rice, and I thought, no, why did you have the salad? And I'm forcing the chicken and rice down because it was the only reasonable thing to do under the circumstances. And, you know, you get the nice wine, you know, and stuff like that, but... It wasn't as good. I wish I hadn't had the salad. Now, you probably know something about what that's like when you can't really enjoy something. Here Christ is starving 40 days. And Satan comes to him, turn these stones to bread. Christ could have done it. And who could think, well, it's not so bad. He's, he's having a bit of food. But what does Christ say? Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is that? But total, utter dependence upon God for everything on God's terms. So we can summarize what the godly life is. The godly life is not living independently of God, but in dependence upon God. Do you know, I thought about re- writing a book. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And I think that title's been taken to much financial success by the author, by the way. But then I thought, well, since Rick Warren took The Purpose Driven Life, I'm going to try a different book, The Totally Dependent Life. And you know what? It just won't sell. You know why it won't sell? Because Americans and perhaps some Canadians, the idea of the purpose-driven life, where does the accent fall on the purpose-driven life versus the totally dependent life? The accent falls upon the person in the purpose-driven life. People want to be able to do something. They think they are lacking purpose. They want to set these goals. They want to feel they have value But actually, the Christian life is not so much a purpose-driven life, and I'm not saying there's no purpose. The Christian life is fundamentally total dependence upon God. That is the Christian life. And people don't really want to live that way. 
And the reason I know that is because in the Bible, God's people are often being rebuked for not being dependent. Jesus will say to His disciples, unless you become like little children, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little child. It was quite cute because there's like 800 people there, almost all Baptists. They're um, not Presbyterians. I know that because the two Presbyterians there came up and identified themselves to me and said, well, it's nice there's another Presbyterian here. And I just thought for a moment, in a weak moment, I said, you know, this means every true baptism is actually an infant baptism. And they kind of laughed. Because unless you become like a little child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Everyone who comes into the kingdom must be like a little child. What does that actually mean? You become like a little child, you become totally dependent. That is one of the marks of a little child. Total dependence. James says in chapter 4, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't live in a dependent way upon God. What does Christ say to His disciples? He says, you need to ask and you will receive. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. He teaches them to pray. And one of the petitions is, Give us this day. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. He has to teach them to be dependent. And so, I think one of our biggest sins in our Christian life is living as God lives rather than living as Christ lived. God is the only one who has a right to total independence. God is the only one who is in need of nothing. Christ comes into the world as the God-man and according to His humanity lives in total dependence upon God. That is how you are to live just as He did. To ask, to receive. How do you know that you are living a dependent life? Because you come to worship God. Because you pray to God. Because you ask God for wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let let him ask God and he will give generously to all without reproach. Are you living a dependent life? Stephen Charnock, and I'll close with this. He says that self-love and desire of independence of God has been the root of all sin in the world. The great controversy or controversy. I like controversy, by the way. You know that. I think Charnock would have said controversy, so I'll quote him. The great controversy between God and man has been whether he or they shall be God. Whether his reason or theirs, his will or theirs, shall be the guiding principle. Seeking to do God's will on God's terms in God's strength is the dependent life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Be not independent. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. God's independency is good news for you and for me. It means we can drink from the fountain of life forever and ever and always be filled because He can do nothing else but give of His unlimited resources to those who need everything in the power of His grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we may know what it is to be dependent creatures, living as Christ lived, asking and receiving and knowing that You give generously to all who will depend upon You. Amen.